The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. I'm a little bit unimpressed of the discipline and the training level of the Russian forces. As bad and as horrific as this is, we want to make sure that we do not see an escalation. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. My sense is that commodity prices will remain very high, elevated, certainly over the next few months, probably the first half of the year. Do Republicans want to give Democrats a victory on getting tough with China? On a political basis, the answer is no. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. To ban or not to ban? That is the question Washington has been grappling with today when it comes to buying Russian crude oil. We're going to dig into that in the next hour on Sound On. This is Emily Wilkins here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. We're filling in today for Joe Matthew. We'll be speaking in a little bit later with the White House's Jared Bernstein. Well, Washington has had its focus on Ukraine for the last week, and the latest debate is whether there should be a ban on Russian oil. So far, the White House has been leery of such a ban. Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adiamo spoke earlier today on Bloomberg surveillance about the need to ensure that Americans have a steady oil supply. We're focused on making sure that the energy markets are well supplied today because we want to make sure costs are reduced for American people today and we're depriving President Putin of the resources he needs to fight the war today. Over time, we need to do more to make sure that the energy market is well supplied and we're also focused on that as well. Concerns about Russia and Ukraine, concerns about gas prices. Well, here to discuss the mood on Capitol Hill among Democrats in Congress is Congresswoman Deborah Ross, a Democrat from North Carolina. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Yesterday, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked whether there should be a ban on U.S. imports of Russia crude oil. She did not mince words. She said, I'm all for it. Ban it. Congresswoman Ross, is this sentiment shared widely uh, within Democrats on the Hill? Uh, Well, first of all, I'm thrilled to be with you. This is my first time on the show, and it's so exciting. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Um, I think the Democrats on the Hill want to make sure that we minimize the impact of the Ukrainian war on our supplies of oil and Democrats want to find different sources of oil for our needs and for our allies' needs, including in the Middle East. And I know that the Biden administration has worked hard on that. Of course, um, because the Iran nuclear deal was scuttled, um, being able to access that oil from Iran um, has gone away. But we need to be able to satisfy and deal with our needs and reduce our needs in our policies. And so that all those combinations will make sure that we don't have to rely on Russia for oil. 
And, and Congresswoman, I do want to just take a minute. Uh, a red headlines now crossing the terminal. Bloomberg is going to temporarily halt the work of its journalists in Russia. I, I know that Bloomberg is certainly not the only news organization to sort of be rethinking its coverage in the region right now. Uh, but Congresswoman, I know before you came to Congress, you did some work with renewable energy. Are you worried that that a push to ban Russian oil could lead to more production of non-renewables? I think that might be a short term consequence, but I actually think that um, this whole situation with oil prices spiking shows the need for us to get more renewable energy that is dependable as soon as possible. The key is to be energy independent. And the less we rely on fossil fuels, the better. And I'm proud that the Biden administration is pushing this. Democrats in Congress are pushing this. Many of the things that Democrats have done over the years to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels are things that are making our current situation better, like fuel economy standards, like electric vehicles. All of these things lead to energy independence and are very good for the country and the rest of the world. So, Congresswoman, uh, uh, the the way Senator Joe Manchin recently put it when he spoke in favor of cutting off Russian oil to the U.S. was that he'd be okay paying something like 10 cents a gallon more for gas. Uh, according to the EIA, we get about 3% of our imports of oil from Russia. That doesn't sound like a very big number. It does seem the right. White House wants to uh, wants to limit the effect on American gas prices. What do you actually think these kinds of limitations would do to American gas prices? Would it be noticeable? Well, I'm not an expert on um, gas pricing, but it is supply and demand. And again, there are lots of places we can get this supply and we need to reduce our demand by having alternative ways of um, powering our cars and heating our homes. And so the combination of looking for other sources, um, working with our allies and reducing our demand should reduce the price. Congressman, I also want to talk for a minute about the jobs report we got today, an increase of 678,000 jobs in February, better than what the experts expected. Uh, This currently seems to show that we're coming a bit out of the pandemic. But at the same time, we saw the uh, unemployment rate for black women increase. I'm just wondering what your takeaway is here and what your thoughts are on what Congress needs to do, if anything. Well, number one, um, what has happened since the Biden administration has taken office in terms of jobs and the economy has been um, wonderful. And the growth has been incredible. But that growth does not affect everybody. And in particular, people who are still struggling um, during the pandemic with issues like child care and, of course, the child tax credit, um, which lifted so many children out of poverty, has expired. We've got to get it back. We've got to make it permanent. Um, schools um, is, not Is there a realistic chance of, of that happening? If I can just cut in you for a second here. I mean, I, oh, I know that we've talked I about the child tax credit. Serious, but. Yeah, I think that there is a chance of that happening. I think it's widely popular. Um, it affects working families. It Again, it has lifted children out of poverty. It has given families a sense of financial security. Um, I've heard from people in my district, as a matter of fact, I gave a floor speech about it, um, for a working mom 
where she said it made all the difference between being able to pay for childcare and being able to pay for school supplies. So there are impediments to all women getting back to work, but in particular, um, single parents. And we need to make sure, of course, we need them in these jobs because there's so many job openings, that what we do is enact family-friendly policies that make sure kids are taken care of and make sure parents can get back to work in these jobs that are open. So, Congresswoman, aside from the exact details of what would be in this uh, sort of BBB redux bill, uh, I'm curious about the top line because Senator Manchin is saying he'd be comfortable with if you get about $1.7 trillion in revenue from tax measures, maybe you use half of that to reduce the deficit and the other half for things you like. Are you comfortable with a bill that's sort of 50% focused on just cutting the deficit and, and only half of that revenue goes to whether parts of the CTC or climate or whatever. What do you think about that broader idea? Well, the Build Back Better um, original plan mostly paid for itself, largely paid for itself. And so what we need to do is make sure that we do things that stimulate our economy so that we have money. And we've seen that in state governments. We've seen that even in um, in the federal budget, that if our economy is humming, then our deficit goes down. And so we need to make sure that we have the proper balance. I think we need to invest in our people first and foremost. We saw um, historic tax cuts that only went to the richest Americans and contributed to that budget um, deficit. And what we need to do now is invest in our people. Well, speaking of funding, we have the bill that funds the government that needs to be passed by March 11th uh, to avoid a government shutdown. And I know something uh, a little bit unique this year compared to the last previous several years is that you have earmarks in there, specific amounts of funding for various districts. Congresswoman, I believe you've got $10 million in specific projects to your district. How has it impacted your constituents that they haven't gotten this this funding yet? Um, so far past the date where the new fiscal year was supposed to begin? Well, they're waiting with bated breath um, to see whether or not they um, receive some of these um, funds. And some of the ones that I've asked for, I, I asked for funds that would help with education, um, with a new DNA testing lab in, in Wake County. I asked for funds that would help for, with affordable housing. And so some of these projects are moving along, but they would move along much more quickly if the federal government invested. And um, we're seeing that all over uh, the country. And what I would say about these, the projects, particularly the ones that I asked for, these are projects that don't just help a small segment of the population. They help with fighting crime, they help with affordable housing, which we know is in crisis all over this country, but particularly in growing areas like Wake County. And so um, I am hopeful that we'll see this money coming sooner rather than later. Uh, Congresswoman, I want to ask real quick, since you're on the Rules Committee, uh, we're still waiting on that omnibus bill to come out. The deadline to avoid a shutdown is Friday. Are you guys going to be able to send it to the floor maybe on Monday or how fast do you think the House can move on that? 
Well, the Rules Committee always does its job and is willing to meet um, late into the evening and into the wee hours. We're a hardworking committee. Um, we haven't gotten the notice yet, um, but I'm planning to be in um, D.C. bright and early on Monday morning. And if we get a notice that says we need to be there any earlier, I will get on a plane and do it. And so we will get, as soon as we get um, the omnibus, we will do our job so that we can vote. Well, Congresswoman Deborah Ross, thank you so much for joining us on Bloomberg Sound Down. That was Congresswoman Deborah Ross, uh, North Carolina Democrat. Coming up, we assemble the panel with Bloomberg contributors Jeannie Sean Zeno and Rick Davis. And later, we'll speak with Jared Bernstein from the White House. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Biden administration is considering a ban on U.S. imports of Russian oil, our colleagues report on the Bloomberg Terminal this afternoon, citing people familiar with those conversations. The president had previously held out, fearing higher energy prices here in the U.S. Then again, the administration definitely does expect that sanctions will be effective. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Brussels today for meetings on Russia and Ukraine with the European Council. Secretary Blinken told reporters he is, quote, very confident that they will succeed in stopping Vladimir Putin's violation of basic rights of nation sovereignty. Let's play that sound. If we allow those principles to be challenged, as Putin is doing now, with impunity, that will open a Pandora's box of trouble uh, for not just us, but quite frankly, for the entire world. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with my Bloomberg government colleague, Emily Wilkins. Let's bring in the panel, our favorite Bloomberg politics contributors, Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis. Rick, let's start with you as Congress forces a hard discussion on how far we go with sanctions, uh, exactly what we target. We've heard proposals ranging from a, a variety of Republicans to Joe Manchin all the way to Ed Markey, the progressive senator, that we should cut off Russian oil imports in the the U.S. Uh, I'm curious, do you see them forcing Biden's hand? How do you see this playing out? You know, it's a good question. Uh, I don't know who strikes first. Uh, as you point out, there is no ideological differences in how people view Russia oil these days. Um, conservatives, liberals, progressives, moderates, all alike uh, see the wisdom in trying to find a way to cut off uh, our, our use of Russian oil. And, uh, and I think it's just going to be a race to the finish line. Uh, Congress could act and send a bill to, to the president, or the president could actually uh, unilaterally get moving on this. And, and I would have said Congress was in the lead yesterday, but it looks like from your reporting that the Biden administration might be figuring this out for themselves, and uh, we could probably learn something as early as this weekend. You know, Jane, it seems like what would happen if we did ban these Russian oil imports is that it would drive up gas prices at the pump for Americans. And, and I'm wondering if that indeed does come to pass, would there be a do you have, do you have a sense whether Americans would be supportive of that? With, are they supportive enough of Ukraine, cognizant enough of the crisis in Ukraine that they might 
actually be okay with their gas price going up a few cents? Well, this is one of the things that when we were listening to the State of the Union, I personally wanted the president to address more was this issue you just raised, Emily, of sacrifice, because that's what it's going to require. And, you know, one of the big questions, just to step back here on this issue of energy, is the White House is considering, and I think rightly so, does this just hurt the buyer in, in other words, does Russia just start selling to other markets like China, like India? That has been raised. And if that's the case and it doesn't impact them, but the impact is on the buyer, then this may be a good idea in theory, But and it has a lot of support, as, as Rick and Jack were just talking about, but may not be one that is good to pursue. So I think that has to be a really serious consideration before they go in this direction. Well, Jeannie, let me ask you then, uh, you know, when when I look at the statistic that we get about 3% of our oil imports in the U.S. from Russia, what does that do to broader energy prices in the U.S.? Or is this more political because gasoline prices in particular are so wide? It's It's very transparent. You drive down the road, you see gas prices on a big sign. Is this really an economic issue or is it more of a political issue to the Biden administration? You know, I think it's both. As we look, people saying that California is about to hit $5 and you guys know better than I do if they haven't already. Um, I know and we all know as we fill up our cars, it is something we feel in our pocketbook. And it's also a political issue. You know, one of the things uh, that I hear people say when you talk to them about this, if it's between roughly three to eight percent, why can't we make that up? And I think if we go in that direction, there's going to have to be a hard conversation with Democrats and Republicans about how you make that up. And of course, Democrats don't want Biden to go back on restricting production in the pipelines. And that's exactly where Republicans are heading. And so, Jack, to your point, that becomes a real political problem for the Biden administration. You know, I'm looking at the terminal right now and there's a headline, Shell buys Russia's flagship oil at a record discount. Uh, Looks like we are reporting um, that this is a decision by Shell, obviously Europe's largest oil company, and just kind of goes to show that companies are are still open to doing business here with Russia. Is this something that that lawmakers and and policymakers should address as far as what these private companies want to do, Rick? Or or is this something where the the government kind of just has to let private companies behave in the way they feel is best? Emily, that's been one of the big criticisms of a ban on Russian oil is so just sell it to somebody else, right? There's an active market. China will take anybody's oil all the time. Uh, and uh, and, and what, what good are we doing? Well, a part of it is a political statement, right? And part of that political statement is we're not going to do business with Russia. And I don't know how this administration gets over that hump. How, how do you look the voters in the face and say, we're going to continue to do business with Russia while we try to put all these other sanctions on it doesn't make any sense. It's just not logical. Rick, I want to ask one thing off of sanctions exactly before we get a little later to Jared Bernstein from the White House. What do you make of Senator Lindsey Graham publicly, including on Twitter, calling for someone in Russia to assassinate Vladimir Putin? Yeah. Where is Brutus in Russia? I mean, that might be the strangest comment I've ever heard from a United States senator. Um, Look, I think it just 
echoes the frustration <coughs> that Congress has, and Lindsey Graham specifically, who's been a big advocate uh, for Ukraine and an opponent of, of Putin for a long time, is that we just got to get something done to try and hem in Vladimir Putin. And if it, if it, and I think it's just a, a cry of desperation. Right. We'll be back a little later with Jeannie and Rick. But next, we're going to talk to Jared Bernstein, who's a member of the White House's Council of Economic Advisors. With Emily Wilkins, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Well, with us now is Jared Bernstein, a member of the White House Council on Economic Advisors. Jared, thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to start off by asking you about February's job report. In many ways, it was a good report. It beat expectations, an increase of 678,000 jobs. How are you interpreting this number? What does this mean for the economy and for planned rate hikes later this month? Well, it means that we have one of the strongest job markets in generations. Uh, since President Biden got here, uh, 7.4 million jobs have been, been created in terms of non-farm payrolls. And that's a direct result of uh, both monetary and fiscal policy. And from uh, where we sit, uh, the American Rescue Plan, shots and arms and checks and pockets, clearly set the labor market up uh, for a, uh, a recovery and expansion uh, that, again, is historically unique in terms of creating strong, welcoming job openings across the whole economy, very broad, if you look at uh, job growth across industry, construction, manufacturing, pr professional services, even retail trade. So, uh, as you say, very strong jobs report. So how does this play into fiscal policy going forward, especially when we hear Senator Manchin say that in any economic reconciliation bill, half of the revenue should be focused just on reducing the deficit and the other half can be spendable? Do, does this job report make the White House more comfortable with bigger numbers of revenue just focused on reducing the deficit? Well, I think that the first place to start there is to recognize that this is is one month in a trend of ver just very solid gains in the job market. We, we tend to underemphasize one month uh, often because of the bips and bops and the noisy data. Over the past three months, uh, the job market's been averaging 580,000 jobs per month. Uh, again, 7.4 million uh, since the president took office. In terms of fiscal policy, um, kind of steady as she goes in the sense that uh, the real fiscal impulse from the rescue plan took place in 21. If you look at the uh, uh, trajectory of spending, uh, you'll see that it comes down quite steeply and that uh, uh, fiscal impulse, meaning uh, the extent to which the government is uh, fiscal policy is either juicing or is it negative to growth, fiscal impulse actually turns into quite a significant negative uh, this year because we did a lot last year, do much less this year. When it comes to future spending, and here's where some of Senator Manchin's concerns come in, um, I think the most important thing to recognize is that that spending is targeting at easing inflationary pressures by expanding the economy's supply side, its productive capacity. And so that's probably the right way to understand the fiscal dynamics right now. Going back to the jobs report, unemployment fell to 3.8%. However, the unemployment rate for Black women actually rose to 6.1% in February. What does the White House need to do to, dis to address this discrepancy? Well, I think that, first of all, um, we want to, again, again, be careful not to overinterpret one month. In fact, in, in the household survey, which is what you're, you're citing, uh, the results were much stronger for men than, than for women. 
Uh, but before we uh, decide that that's a trend, if you look over on the payroll survey of those 678,000 jobs, half of them went to women and half went to men. So that was a nice breakdown. But you're bringing up an important point, which is uh, is the uh, uh, racial and, and gender uh, uh, disparities in some of these numbers. You know, I noticed today that the Hispanic unemployment rate was down to its pre-pandemic level, 4.4%. But that's still above the uh, uh, the rate for whites, and you could say the same thing for blacks. So uh, the president's equity agenda is targeted at these uh, very kinds of issues. Um, in procurement, he has a very strong and I think probably underappreciated agenda to take some of that $600 billion of procurement that the government does every, every year and make sure it gets to black entrepreneurs, particularly people of color, particularly women entrepreneurs. Uh, same thing with the, uh, uh, when we got here, we tried to make sure that the uh, a paycheck protection program for businesses was much better targeted at uh, minority entrepreneurs, and we had some positive results there as well. So it's really very much a, a matter of policy focus. Uh, that's a high value for this president. So basic question for you, Jared. I'm just curious how much of this you attribute to a reopening uh, as we push through this wave of the Omicron variant. And and does the good news that we see here, especially looking at, say, leisure and hospitality jobs, mean that it's fair to expect future good jobs reports as we continue to sort of reopen? I think it's reasonable to expect and to hope that uh, this kind of rotation of uh, consumer spending uh, from the uh, 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 excess level that it's been on goods more to in-person services uh, should uh, continue as people feel more comfortable engaging in those types of in-person services. We saw some of that in today's report. Uh, labor force participation was up a tenth, uh, again, just a tick up. But if you look at prime age workers, 25 to 54, it was up two tenths, and it's actually uh, showing a pretty good trend. Uh, and so, again, as people feel more comfortable, if, if, if uh, as the Omicron variant fades into the background, perhaps uh, some of those uh, supply side constraints will be eased going forward. Jared, I also wanted to ask a little bit. I know the Bloomberg's reporting the White House is weighing whether to ban Russian oil imports. I know that there are concerns about the prices at the pump, but I also know that Russian imports have made up an increasingly smaller amount of American oil and gas. So at this point, what's really the concern of of not going through with a ban? Yeah, really a great question. And uh, in fact, I was just looking at the numbers. Um, uh, the U.S. Uh, imports, uh, three, about 3% of the U.S. oil imports are Russian oil. I think you can get closer to uh, 7 to 10% if you include refined products. But you're right, as a share of our imports, uh, that's pretty pretty small. Um, I think the, uh, the message right now is that we're having high-level discussions on this idea of, of a Russian import ban on energy products, uh, not by the way, an important distinction, not on energy sanctions, that carve out remains. We're consulting with our allies, uh, but I think one of our important goals here, the president articulated uh, just uh, today, I believe, is no decrease uh, to the uh, supply of oil coming to our, our shores, uh, of, cor- of course, including our domestic production um, and, and uh, because of, of those price effects. I should also point out that no decisions have uh, been made on those issues yet. Well, that is about all the time we have today. Jared Bernstein, thank you so much for joining us, a member of the White House Council on Economic Advisors. 
Coming up, we reassemble the panel to close out our Friday, get you on to on the way to your weekend. I'm Emily Wilkins here with Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. You heard Jared Bernstein just a little bit ago, a member of the White House's Council of Economic Advisors, acknowledge that, yes, the administration uh, is considering or at least cannot rule out adding restrictions on Russian oil and gas coming to the U.S. after the big news this afternoon on the Bloomberg, Bloomberg terminal that those conversations were happening. Let's bring in our panel, Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, hosting with Emily Wilkins while Joe is out today. Uh, Guys, Bernstein seemed in the last segment uh, a bit positive about the idea. He he didn't confirm this was going to happen, but seemed a bit positive about uh, the idea of potentially adding a ban on Russian oil. Uh, Rick, what did you make of of his tone on that possibility? Yeah, I thought it was pretty practical and uh, positive. Uh, Obviously, the administration is putting out signals that they're looking at it. And as he described it, at the very highest levels, which means, you know, the White House staff and Biden. Uh, So, Uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if we don't get an announcement sometime soon about this. And obviously, they are also making the preparations to replace that uh, lost supply of oil, if they do ban it, uh, with with other crude. So uh, should not have too much of a bad impact. But I would say our gas prices in this area are going up uh, 60 cents in the last two days. Uh, So uh, I don't know what's happening out there, whether we're getting gouged or whether the market is so hot. But uh, it's not like it's not going up anyway. So I think the administration just ought to reconcile it with the fact that they don't want to do business with Russia. Well, we just got that key metric of what exactly is Rick Davis paying for gas? That's a significant one to look for. Uh, Guys, aside from the sanctions talk specifically, there's a lot coming up uh, heading into next week, even maybe this weekend. I would point out that Yes, the government funding deadline is in a week. Next Friday night at midnight, we'd have a shutdown if they can't manage to fund the government. They are still working on a 12-bill omnibus government funding package. It is supposed to, according to the plan laid out by the White House and, and Democrats in Congress, carry that $10 billion Ukraine supplemental spending measure with defense funds as well as humanitarian needs and could have another supplemental measure, $22.5 billion for COVID relief. We've heard some pushback, uh, I think most loudly from Mitt Romney, from Republicans, who say they shouldn't attach a, another COVID relief to this broader government funding measure. Uh, and that seems to be one of the, the key challenges over the next week. Rick, I'm curious what you make of Republicans at this point saying, hold up, we want to review the money that's been spent already, what unspent money there is uh, currently. Why are Republicans in the Senate so concerned about adding more COVID money to, to this funding package? 
Well, I, I think Republicans are starting to act like Republicans, which is that they actually are concerned about federal spending. And we know uh, uh, from the data that states are flush with cash uh, from earlier COVID uh, relief bills. And so uh, if we're going to allocate new money, what's the difference between that and using up some of the money that already exists? And so I think that's what Republicans are concerned about. They, they, they're, they're, they, they want to do whatever they need to do to help ensure that we don't have a relapse on COVID, but they, they don't want to spend additional billions of dollars if they don't need to. Jeannie, I'm going to flip that question and come to you. Why exactly do we need $22.5 billion for COVID? I mean, we're seeing Omicron cases go down. We got to have masks off in the Capitol for Biden's State of the Union. Lots of mask mandates are being lifted. It, it kind of seems like like we're on the verge of, of turning the page here. Why? I mean, $22 billion, that's a lot of money. Why so much and why is that needed? Well, you know, I, I was just thinking when you were talking about this budget, remember those days when the idea of a government shutdown would get all the news and it barely gets a hiccup these days. And 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 this is sort of where we are. And I think what the administration is, is um, envisioning is that the good sort of progress they have made on the issue of COVID, they want to make sure that they retain that. And I also do think it comes back to this issue that you were talking to Jared Bernstein about as it comes to in, inequity. Um, and inequality. We do see that as good as the jobs report was, and it was very strong. We do see the inequity. And this is something that we know about pandemics historically. They exacerbate inequality that's already existing in society. And we are seeing that now. There has got to be a concerted effort by the government to make sure that those inequities are addressed. And so I think it's a a combination of those things. I don't think they're going to get all the money that they want. But I I do think there is an interest here in keeping where we are in terms of the good news on COVID so far. And let's not forget, we're seeing around the world, there are other places where the news is not so good. You know, Jack, you are Bloomberg's government's budget guru. You follow the appropriations process. You're lucky I'm here. Incredibly. We're so lucky. We're always lucky that you are here. But I just wanted to ask because, you know, we saw that the fiscal year technically supposed to start October 1st of 2021. They did uh, the continuing resolution. We kind of expected that, bumped it past the end of the year. There was a deadline in February and now there's a deadline in March. Why is it taking so long for them to fund the government? It seems like in previous years, they can usually get it done uh, before the end of the year. Why is it taking so long? A lot of the time they do it earlier than this. We're almost to the deadline, uh, according to lawmakers I've talked to, where if it took much longer, they might as well not do it and do a full year stopgap and just start talking about next year. I think this is reflective of the priorities that were outlined by the administration and the way they wanted to approach everything they wanted to do. We saw a bipartisan infrastructure bill first that took a little while. They tried to combine that with Build Back Better or whatever exactly it's going to be renamed to. Uh, and and they, they had to quickly spend a lot of time starting out with all of their, their sort of big, more partisan priorities before they would possibly go to something that has to be bipartisan in a broader government funding bill. Uh, and yes, now you're seeing it, it is finally sort of a priority. Uh, Biden talked in his State of the Union about funding for police, uh, border security, establishing ARPA-H, the Advanced Research Project for uh, Health. So these are priorities. But if they could have spent that time and gotten the child tax credit extended further, that would have been a bigger deal. So it's it's high on their list, but it's definitely not the highest thing. 
And, you know, you mentioned there sort of we've talked about it a little bit, this whole idea that there might be a revitalized push for for Build Back Better. Uh, Jeannie, is there any momentum even left for it at this point? Like, great that Manchin's coming to the table with a plan, but there has to be a lot that needs to be done before that would actually get to the point that, that it might even come to the floor for a vote, let alone get to Biden's desk. Yeah, you know, I'm just reflecting on Manchin saying after the State of the Union, Democrats can't help themselves by talking about Build Back Better, which, of course, Joe Biden didn't talk about directly in the State of the Union using those terms. But I do think there is still a push to get aspects of those of it, um, calling it something else. You know, Jack just mentions a child tax credit, um, you know, elder care. The president mentioned several of those, but I don't know that there is the will in Congress without Joe Manchin coming along. My, I think the biggest get at this point would be climate or energy. Building a better America is what it seems Thank to you, have Jack. Been I knew it was a new term. <laughs> it's quite similar. Uh, and he listed off a number of priorities that were BBB priorities, he which still, off, like, every priority. I think it was essentially everything, which leaves us with a lot of questions about what comes off. Now, one last f- uh, final point on the government funding uh, package. It does seem to have kind of been driven along by the fact that this Ukraine spending bill would go along with it. That has a lot of bipartisan support. That number has changed and changed and changed, though. We heard $6.4 billion, We heard uh, $10 billion, And I'm curious how sure we can be that it's going to keep going up as humanitarian costs keep going up. Jeannie, what do you make of, you know, are they say $10 billion for Ukraine now, but are we going to need to see a series of bills in Congress uh, addressing what I think would probably be a, a long-term humanitarian fallout? We will. $10 billion isn't even going to scratch the surface of what they need to do. And I think we are seeing recognition of that in Congress at this point. So I think this is the first of what's going to be many. Uh, Rick, what do you see as the longer term needs, very briefly, uh, for Ukraine aid? You know, I, I, similar to what Gina was just saying, I mean, it, it, we're at $10 billion now. It could double that. Um, certainly, uh, it depends upon how the war effort goes and how long it goes and how many refugees uh, come out of Ukraine looking for assistance. So uh, I think we're just scratching the surface. And, and it wouldn't be unusual to get supplementals uh, throughout the year, uh, which I'm sure will be the track that this is on. I think things got slowed down a little bit last week when Congress tried to take an effort to take some of the money that they plussed up for the Defense Department to keep it even right. with domestic spending and try to say, oh, well, that's the money we can use for Ukraine. Right. So I don't think uh, Senator Shelby liked that very much. And now it's a supplemental. So yeah, the uh, exact number for defense has been negotiated. Thanks again to our guests, Deborah Ross and Jared Bernstein, as well as Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis. With Emily Wilkins, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.